Our Heavenly Father, we want to ask you that you would do for us today what you promise, and that is by your Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten the darkness of our sinful minds. Amen. <coughs> well, as Russ said, <coughs> pardon me, over the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, and we've been exploring what embodiment means as we live the life of faith. Because God has structured this existence that we have by giving us bodies. And in his kindness, he hasn't left us to think out and to search out for what we might do in that embodiment. He's given us clear commands for some of the situations of life and commands that are always good. And we just read some of them a moment ago. And for those things that he hasn't specifically written about, he actually gives us some wisdom that shapes our thinking so that we can work out how to live in situations where we don't have clear commands. Now, our embodiment, of course, goes back to creation. There, God made mankind as part of the created order. Uh, we weren't just thinking, we weren't just a brain, nor were we just social beings, but we were embodied. Embodied by being made out of the dust of the earth. Adam and Eve were given the garden by God so that his embodied creatures could enjoy it and have everything that they needed supplied to them. And as we roll forward from that creation to the Corinthian letter that we have before us, we move past the one who is God embodied in the flesh and the one in whom we see what our bodies will one day be like. And as we have looked at Corinthians over these last couple of weeks, we have seen that our embodiment has consequences and responsibilities and we need to make our decisions wisely. That is, we, there are consequences about who we unite our bodies with. If we unite our bodies with prostitutes, if we unite our bodies for sexual immorality, that is disastrous. And the other amazing thing is that our bodies can be united to Christ. And so over these last couple of weeks, we've reflected that without God, we do what is ever so natural, what the human disposition is, and that is we just seek to please our embodiment. And I get that because if you don't have God, why wouldn't you just want to please what this body has? But I hope you recall that we paused and savoured the majestic truth that our body was meant for so much more than that, that this body of mine and your body, with all of its finitude, its weakness, its failures, is united to Christ and united in such a way that Paul describes us as being a temple in which God dwells by his Holy Spirit. Astounding, isn't it? The God of the universe dwelling in us by his Holy Spirit. And so the obvious conclusion, as you get to halfway through chapter 7, is that we must use our embodiment to promote purity, to promote devotion to God. And as we devote ourselves to those things, it is not just us who benefit but we can benefit all those around us as well. And so we looked at that in sex and marriage last time. But today, in this longer passage, the issue of embodiment 
means that we're confronted with another sort of set of decisions, and that is where, on the one hand, uh, we, because we are embodied beings, are individual. And so our situations are specific, our context is uh, individual, we have our specific circumstances. And so what we do is we must use our minds and our freedoms and the opportunities we have to shape what we do and to modify our situations so that we can live for Christ. That's one of the things that we've got to do because we are individual embodied people. But on the other hand, we've got to recognise that God is sovereign and he oversees every detail of life, the small and the large, and God has placed you in your situation. Everything that's happened to you as you're sitting here in this chapel this morning has been under the hand of God. Now, of course, I'm thinking Acts 17, not just because it was in Athens and, it was, and I'm Greek, but, you know, where God has set the exact bounds that people will live in. And so we've got this freedom and opportunity that we have as individuals and everyone's circumstance is different at the same time as God sovereignly ordaining so that we are where we are now under his good hands. So it does raise the question for us, should we stay in the circumstances that we are in because they're given by God or should we change our circumstances? And I hope that you see when we put it like that, should we stay or should we change, that it affects far more than just uh, our marital relationships. In ministry and mission, uh, we speak often about the term homeostasis just because we like using big words so that we can match the other departments. Um, <laughs> that is, homeostasis is the inclination of all systems, natural and human systems, to maintain or to revert to what always has been. And you can actually use the sovereignty of God as an excuse to justify homeostasis, can't you? God has placed me in this situation, therefore I mustn't change anything. That's one pathway. The other pathway is there are some of us here as well who are wired to be early adopters of everything. We're always seeking new things, always looking for change, always trying to improve what's happening, and we're in danger of looking on down on those who don't want to change because we want to leave our mark on the world and leave things in a better state. Well, that is the issue, I think, that is on view here in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in this chapter, as Russ read it to us, you can see that Paul looks at several different situations that the Corinthians might find themselves in. And as you look at these situations, you can see what his advice is in those situations, but as you look at them and see why he gives the advice that he gives, it helps us to draw some conclusions about how we should live. And so I'm not going to work verse by verse through these, uh, passage, this passage, that's why I asked Russ to read it. I'm just going to pick up some general principles and then make a conclusion. So the first general principle that you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is stay in the situation you are in and be devoted to Christ. Verse 17 puts it very, very, very clearly. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule that I lay down in all the churches. Live in the situation that the Lord has assigned to you. Stay put. That verse is often quoted as how we should live. 
We use it as the advice that we give to people. Stay put. But it's actually not the most important part of the verse. The most important clause in verse 17 is just as the Lord has called them. Or probably a better translation is live the life that God has assigned to you. That is, the focus of verse 17 is don't go back to what you once were. Remember the power of homeostasis. You once were without hope and without God in the world. Don't go back there. Or to pick up the language that Peter uses, don't be like the dog that returns to its vomit or the sow to wallowing in the mud. The circumstances that you are in, you can stay in. They can stay the same, but you must never stay the same and you must never revert. You must keep aligning your life to what God has called you to be, to be pure and holy. And I think that is what the Apostle says here, that it's the rule that he applies in all the churches. So your circumstances don't need to change for you to be changed. And you must keep being changed. You must keep being more devoted to God. Brothers, we mustn't blame the situations that we are in. I think that's, that's what verse 17 is saying. And I'm guilty of that. As I've pastored people, I said, I can understand why you did what you did. Well, I know why you did what you did, and I probably would have sadly acted in the same way. But I think Paul is saying the situations that you are in, you can still be godly. Well, obviously, chapter 10 is coming up, isn't it? Where no temptation has been given that there is not a godly way out of. And so the apostle says in verse 20, each person should remain in the situation that they were in when God called them. Well, verse 24, brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation that they were in when God called them. Now, that sounds pretty cut and dry, doesn't it? And as we now work through this section and see it applied to different situations, in these applications, we will see why Paul says stay in these circumstances. So firstly, circumcision, verse 18. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He shouldn't become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He shouldn't become circumcised. I have no idea, and frankly, I have no desire to know how you could possibly become re-circumcised or re-uncircumcised. Um, I'm assuming that is a figure of speech that Paul is using to make his point. But why should they stay as they are? Verse 19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's command is what counts circumcision, uncircumcision, as big as they were in the first century, don't matter. They're nowhere near as important as purity. Keeping God's command is what happened, what, is, what matters. And you see it there about the slave and the free person. Should the slave change their circumstance? Verse 21, were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. I think slavery is seen as one of the big four crimes of our age that must be overcome at all cost. And yet Paul says here, whether you're a slave or whether you're a free, 
doesn't matter. If you can get your freedom, that's good, but don't be troubled if you remain a slave. That is so counter to the world. And why does he say that? Well, verse 22. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when, was, when they were called is Christ's slave. Slavery, freedom, doesn't matter. Belonging to Christ is what matters. And what about becoming a slave? That wasn't an uncommon thing in the ancient world when a person sold themselves into slavery in order to repay their debts. Verse 23. You were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of human beings. Don't become slaves because you belong to Christ. And what about those that are engaged to be married? Now, engagement in the first century was much stronger than our concept of engagement. Uh, I think it's, I'm actually quite sad that we've lost the term betrothal. Betrothal is a solemn oath of exclusivity. And so what should a person who is betrothed, who has solemnly promised that they will marry this person, what should they do? Verse 27. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. Well, what about if you're not betrothed? Second half of verse 27. Are you free from such a commitment? Don't look for a wife. Now, the question is, why then does Paul speak so strongly about staying in the circumstances that you find yourself in? It's not to keep you in your place. It's not that where you start must be where you end. It is because there is no circumstance where you cannot be changed to grow in your union with Christ despite what that circumstance is. There is something that is far more important than changing your circumstance and it's belonging to Christ, being united to him and honouring him, being changed by him. And I've got to say, this principle is a challenge to us personally and a challenge to all those that we minister to as well because our congregations are part of a social order that actually doesn't listen to this. And so it really is important that we dwell on it because we, or us men here and our church members, are generally in the upwardly mobile classes. And what do young people in the upwardly mobile classes do? They seek to reach for the stars. People in middle age, what do they seek to do? They seek security. Older people, what do they seek? Upwardly mobile older people, comfort. Now these things aren't wrong and trying to shape your life so you can have them aren't wrong either, but they are nowhere near as important as being united with Christ. And yet I think we have drunk in that air so often that says, of course you will make these changes. And Paul is calling us to account and saying, no, there is something far more than those things, than upwardly mobile, than comfort, than security. And that is becoming more like Christ. And I am sure you know, as I know, great examples of people in our churches that have actually turned their back on the upward mobility. I had a friend, I was thinking about this last night, there's a whole lot of them, but here's one. I had a friend who was rapidly rising up the ranks 
of the big, one of the big four accounting companies. He was offered the world. He, they said, you're going to be a partner really soon. And when you're a partner, everything is going to be rosy. But as he was rising, it meant that first, the teaching that he did in kids' church had to drop away. Then he couldn't make it regularly to Bible study. And then his family was squeezed out. And he realised that the people for whom God had given him the joy of responsibility were being replaced by the seven-letter hope of P-A-R-T-N-E-R. And so he left that company and went to a backwater job where he sought to honour Christ. That's the sort of thing that we are challenged with here in uh, this first general principle. Which leads then to the second general principle. Remain in your situation because change actually distracts you. We all know the cost of change. Change takes energy. Change creates stress. Change intensifies anxiety. Change forces you to focus your attention on the thing that you are changing and so therefore narrows your view and you don't pay attention to other things. You actually can lose your focus on union with Christ and devotion to him. And you see that in the circumstances that Paul lists here. Verse 26, you're still with me? It's a longer passage than I normally do. Verse 26. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Well, what's the present crisis? I've got to say, I don't know, and as I read the commentaries, they don't know either. <laughs> but I do know something about crisis. That is, crisis requires focus. Crisis is urgent. Crisis narrows your vision. Crisis demands immediate action. You're probably aware, but there were never Olympic Games held during the First and Second World War because that crisis demanded focus. No one cares about hurdling at that stage. <laughs> and Paul says that because of this crisis, it's good not to get married but to remain as you are. It's not that marriage is wrong, because he tells us why it's good to remain as you are, because you need to focus, because it's the days of crisis. Some people think that the crisis that Paul speaks of here is the permanent state that we find ourselves in between the ascension of Jesus and his return, because they are crisis days, aren't they? They are days where the world is under the judgment of God and so the world must be evangelised. I actually don't think that Paul's speaking about that as a permanent problem until the return of Jesus, but it might be. But his reason for not getting married still stands, and that is purity, focus on devotion to Christ, is what every Christian is called to in every day, in every generation. And so if you're always changing so that you can set up life to be better, you will get distracted. If you are always looking for the next experience, the next promotion, the next comfort, the next, it will distract you from devotion to Christ. And you see that spelt out more fully in verses 32 to 35, where marriage carries responsibilities that means your devotion has to be divided. We have responsibility to our spouses. 
and uh, you can hear about those if you re-listen to last week's sermon. Let me read to you verses 32 to 35 and just make one quick comment uh, at the end. I'd like you all to be free from concern. An unmarried man's concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. A married man's concerned about the affairs of the world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin's concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman's concerned about the affairs of this world, how she should please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. It's about devotion to the Lord. It's not about the rightness or wrongness of marriage, is it? Now, unmarried men, since it's Men's Chapel, can I say to you, don't moan about your state. Use these days as an opportunity to serve the Lord. Married men, don't look down on your unmarried brothers as if they have a problem. A couple of decades ago, in our chapel here, we heard a sermon from a man, a leader, who is now a disgraced leader, and told every single man, every single man, to get married, because otherwise they would be babies and mummy's boys if they didn't. He didn't read 1 Corinthians 7. Stay as you are, as it generally enhances devotion. But the third principle then, circumstances differ, so beware of judging. Paul gives so many examples here about staying in your situation, it would be easy for us, and particularly as young ministers, to say don't change anything. But I want to say to us, weave through each of these examples, Paul gives the principle of it is horses for courses. Every situation that a person is in is nuanced and different, and so don't judge. Remember how I started off before? Every one of us in our embodied situation is in a different setting, and God is still sovereign. And so what Paul says here is, there'll be different reasons and different things that people will do. Do not judge them. We saw it there in verse 21 about slavery. If you're a slave when you were called, don't let that trouble you. Although if you can get your freedom, do so. See, there's a nuance to it. And Paul gives an extended comment about whether you should marry in verses 28 and following, but the headline is verse 28. If you do marry, you haven't sinned, even though he said it's better to stay as you are. And if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. But those who marry will face troubles in this life, and I want to spare you from that. And it's filled out in verse 36. If anyone's worried about how he might not be acting honourable to the virgin that he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do so as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled this matter in his own mind is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will. Who... Um, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin. This man also does the right thing. You see, keeping your word, concern for your betrothed, in your circumstance matters. Strong bodily urges that can lead to sexual immorality matters. Brothers, each person stands before the Lord for the decisions that they make and you don't know all of those details. 
So beware of illegitimate judgment that arises from not knowing everything. And by the way, not knowing everything is a universal human trait. Finally, the fourth principle, if you have choice, use it to foster devotion to the Lord. That's really run through the first three as well. And that's what drives the passage and it helps us to balance those competing factors of our personal circumstances and the sovereign hand of God. If God gives you choice, use your choices to enhance your devotion to God. Don't use your choices just to enhance your comfort. And I think it's summed up in verse 35. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. You see, these general principles are just that. They are general and they are just principles. They are guidelines. They're like lanes in our journey or lanes on the track and field so you know where to run. They are not here to restrict or to limit us, but to free us to be devoted to God. And if we didn't have these words from God through his apostle, we'd be prone to be tossed by every societal push or whim. We'd be followed by the directions that are set to us by Hollywood, the directions of social media, the games manufacturers that just keep wanting us to get towards that goal. We'd be controlled by the world, the flesh and the devil. So it's very kind of God to give us these lanes, these directions. But recognise that it is not the circumstances that matter most, but the devotion that matters. Changing situations takes energy. Energy which is often best spent in deepening devotion. So as I conclude with a little story. When I was 14, I was selected to attend, to attend a week-long leadership development conference in Sydney. I was a boy from the country. I had never been on a plane, and they put me on a plane from Casino to Sydney, so for the day before I was shaking. Uh, and in fact, I'd never even been to Sydney before. I'd never been to a town that had more than 20,000 people in it. And so we, were, we came down to Sydney, and I was shown the sights of the city, and we had some leadership talks that were scattered through the week, and so it was a really quite a formative week. And one talk in that week I remember well, and it shaped me for years. I still remember the man's name. His name was Seamus, and he stood up. I can't remember all of the talk, but he said, Sic transit gloria mundi. And I said, that's Latin, and I don't know Latin. Uh, but he explained it, fortunately unlike lots of our theological texts. And, uh, and, uh, and he said, the glory of this world is passing away. And so as a 14-year-old, armed with those words, I decided that I wouldn't live for this world that is transitory, but for, to the one who opened up another world through his death for me. And only years later, when I was reflecting on that conference, I realised that Seamus was a Catholic. I should have got it from his name. And the words that he spoke, Sic Transit Gloria Mundi, are actually the words that are said to the Pope at their enthronement, which did take a bit of the lustre off it. Um, <laughs> and so now I want to finish by reminding me and you of the words of the Apostle in verse 31. The time is short. 
those who buy something should do so as if it wasn't theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. Heavenly Father, please enable us to work out how to live in this world that we might be devoted to you. Spare us from that lie that says this world is all that there is. And we want to thank you so much that you have granted us union with Christ, a union that is embodied, that is in this world, and will lead into the world to come. Amen.